So let me read that for us. Psalm 7. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there's any wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake, For me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. All right. So, you may be wondering what's going on here tonight, um, but I think it's worthwhile for us to take an opportunity to look at the Psalms occasionally. And the Psalms, uh, if you are familiar with them, you would... Uh, no, the Psalms are a collection of songs, and as such, they have many different occasions, and you may find as you read through, of them, through them that there are some Psalms you really like, some Psalms you resonate with and can truly relate to. There's Psalms that talk about asking for relief in the midst of struggle and stress and strain. There's even Psalms that are about uh, sleepless nights, about tossing and turning. There's Psalms that deal with the burden of feeling guilt and confessing our sins. Psalms that we gravitate towards because they make sense to us. We, can, we, we know what those things feel like. Uh, but this psalm, Psalm 7, is probably one we don't pray very often. Now, I'm, I'm a young guy, I recognize, but I have been a pastor now for a little over 10 years. And in that time, I have been a part of a lot of prayer meetings. I've, I've been... Uh, I've heard lots of people pray, and I've, I've prayed with a lot of people, and I cannot remember a single time in any of those prayer meetings where we have been praying and someone says something like, well, Lord, I just pray that you would sharpen your sword and kill my enemies. I pray that you would uh, just pull out that heavenly crossbow and, and let them have it. We don't pray that way, right? Nobody does. You've, nev- you've never heard it either. You don't, you don't have to tell me. We don't pray that way. Um, And when we come to these kind of psalms, we don't really know what to do. Um, We don't know if we're supposed to ignore them, or or is there something we're supposed to gather from this? And you could probably guess what I think, since I'm going to preach to you about it. I think there is something for us. In fact, I think there's a lot for us to find in here, but we need to understand uh, these psalms, these types of psalms, and then 
this psalm in particular. Um, because if we do, I think that this type of prayer could actually um, really help us as we go through our day-to-day struggles, as we wrestle with the ups and downs of daily life. And I think also, uh, if we can resonate with what David is praying here, it would even give us a level of confidence in the Lord that I think much of the church has lost. Um, And so here's what I want to do. Here's what I want us to do this evening. I want us to talk generally about these type of psalms. I just want to give you kind of a a two-minute lesson on what's happening here. And then once we do that, I want us to look at Psalm 7, which is a psalm about judgment. It's about praying for God's judgment. And I I want us to see first the problems that we have with judgment, why we don't like that idea. And then secondly, I want us to see why we need a righteous judge, why we need a righteous judge. And then finally, how we can rejoice in a righteous judge. So our problem with judgment, why we need a righteous judge, and then how we can rejoice. But before we do that, let's just talk about this genre. I mentioned psalms are songs. And just like any songs, there's, there are genres of songs. There's different types of songs. You know, there's love songs, there's party songs, and you can usually, even without the music, you can tell what kind of song it is based on the lyrics, based on some of the words it says. And um, this, this genre that we're looking at is called an imprecatory psalm. Anybody heard that word before? Imprecatory? It's not one that we use very often. Um, they're called that because these are psalms that imprecate their enemies. Psalms where the psalmist, the author, is calling down curses. They're calling down punishment on their enemies. And compared to some of the other ones that you find in the book of Psalms, this is actually kind of a mild one. Uh, There are other imprecatory psalms where the psalmist says things like, may my enemy's children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May my enemy have their uh, children's heads dashed on rocks. Stuff that just freaks us out when we read it. And, 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 and when you come to that stuff, you just, I think most of us, we don't know what to do. We come to these passages in Scripture and we say, well, uh, I guess I'll just keep going. I'll keep, I'll keep reading. This is, you know, this is some Old Testament stuff. I think that's maybe our default. Well, this, I, I get there's some Old Testament stuff happening here, and I'm just going to... I'm going to leave that in the Old Testament, and I'm going to move on to to my New Testament stuff. Um, But if you go into the New Testament, you find that imprecation, this imprecatory stuff, it actually even shows up in the New Testament some. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul, he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be cursed. Even Paul pulls from this Old Testament language in his writings. And maybe you're like, well, great, good. So you're telling me this hateful stuff is not just in the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament as well. That's not what I'm saying. This, I, what I'm saying is imprecatory stuff is all over the Bible, and we should understand what it means, why it's there. We should understand it so that when we read it, we know what to do with it. Um, if you are the kind of people that study your Bible at home and, and want to learn more about the Bible, there's actually a really cool article on this in, in the ESV Study Bible, in the intro to the Psalms. There's a little blurb that helps you understand about curses in the Psalms. And one of the things that it tells us is um, there's really th- three things we need to keep in mind when we run across these kind of Psalms. Uh, first, whenever a psalmist is praying punishment down on enemies, you have to recognize that these aren't 
petty offenders that they're talking about. So the psalmist isn't praying for the guy who cut him off on the road that day. He's, he's, he's praying against people who mock and hate God, people who are categorized as wicked. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the psalm, but, but, but these aren't petty offenders. That's the first thing. Secondly, we need to remember, psalms are poetry. And because psalms are poetry, they use language in a way that is meant to provoke us, in a way that's meant to grab a hold of our emotions, a way that's meant to make us feel something. And so in our passage today where it says, uh, if someone doesn't repent, God has wet his sword and he's bent his bow, um, he's trying to communicate the point that if someone doesn't repent, they're not going to just get away with it. But this is much more evocative, poetic language to communicate that point. So it's not petty offenders, it's poetry. And then the third thing is you need to recognize, and maybe this most importantly of all, these aren't prayers of personal vengeance. These aren't personal vendettas that the psalmist is, is trying to get across. These are prayers that God would vindicate himself, that God would make his name great, that he would make his name known. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're very clear that we shouldn't be retaliating, that we shouldn't be seeking revenge. Jesus says we need to pray for the people who persecute us, but Proverbs also says, it says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. So these Psalms aren't saying that we should seek out these personal vendettas, Lord, smite my neighbor who keeps taking the newspaper off my front porch. These are saying, Lord, how long will these wicked people keep tarnishing your name? How long will wickedness continue to exist so that people doubt you? These are prayers that say, arise. God, rise up and make your name great. Or in the case of this one today, it says, arise and judge. Arise and judge. But we have a problem with judgment. And so we need to talk about that before we can celebrate it. Um, the first eight verses of this passage are all about David praising God's judgment. He says, Lord, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. He says, arise in your anger, verse 6. Lift up your fury against my enemies. And then verse 8, he says, the Lord judges the people. And he's excited about that. Um, and I'm sure for many of us here, maybe for most of us here, that's not something we readily will be excited about, judgment. Probably one of the worst things that you could say about another person is that they're judgmental. One of the worst things someone could call you is judgmental. And if you're ever in a situation where another person thinks that you're judging them, you're probably going to hear this kind of response. You know, who, who do you think you are, right? Who are, who are you to judge me? And backing that up is the Bible. If, if you remember James, uh, the book of James chapter 4, it says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It seems to say the same thing. Who are you to judge your neighbor. And our culture has taken that little verse and we have twisted it and manipulated it into the phrase, right? Only God can judge me. 
You ever heard that? Only God can judge me. Of course you've heard that because we have further twisted and manipulated it into the popular Miley Cyrus song from a couple summers ago, right? Do you remember the lyric? Because I, I, I may have listened to it several times reading the sermon, right? It's, it's uh, shake it like we're at a strip club. Remember only God can judge us. Forget the haters because somebody loves you, right? <laughs> That's the line. Only God can judge us. Shake it like you're at a strip club, which means it's an idiom at this point, right? It's an American idiom. Only God can judge us really means no one can judge us. No one can judge us. It, it means I'm going to judge for myself. I'm the one who calls the shots. And honestly, that's how most of us live. That's how most of us live our lives. The first problem that we have with judgment is that we want to be the judge. And if you don't believe me, just, just think about it. Think about the way that you live your life. What happens in your life when you have desires that go unmet? For the married people in the room, wives, what happens when your husband is not meeting your emotional needs? Or husbands, what happens when family obligations prevent you from spending time the way that you wanted to spend it? Or for everyone else, what happens when there is someone in your life who fails to live up to your expectations, to perform the way you want them to perform? What happens when someone gets in the way of some of your goals, some of your plans? Well, here's what James says. James 4, he says, You desire... And you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you want things, and you can't obtain them, so you fight and you quarrel. Here's what that means. It means every human being, all of us, we have desires. And some of them are big desires, some of them are big dreams and plans for our life, and some of them are small, just little things. You know, I just want five minutes of peace and quiet. Is is that so much to ask? Right? We have these desires in our life. And when we have put ourselves in the place of the judge, when we've made ourselves the final authority in the world, it's so easy for those desires to become demands. And when those desires become demands and they aren't met, well, we climb up onto the judgment seat and we start doling out sentences, don't we? We start passing verdicts on the people around us and and we start handing out punishments. We say, for you... Silent treatment. For you, cold shoulder. For you, you know, in the more extreme cases, we'll fight. Or as James says here, murder in the worst case scenario. We punish people for their crimes against us. But, and, and the reason why is because when there's no one else to judge, when we're the only judge, that means we have to be the source of justice. So we don't, we don't like judgment first because we like to be the judge. We like to be the one who dispenses the judgment But the other problem we have, the second problem that we have with judgment is when we place ourselves in that seat, it's not just our friends and family who are having to deal with our judgments and our justice, but it's it's actually even God himself who ends up being on trial. C.S. Lewis uh, had this famous quote uh, where he was talking about this reality. He said, uh, you know, it used to be the case that the ancient man would approach God or or the gods or whatever the way that an accused person would approach a judge. 
But for the modern, modern man, for modern people, the roles have been reversed. Now, now we're the judge. And God's the one who's on the stand. We are, now, we, we might be kind judges. Um, if God could give us a reasonable defense for the reason why he permits war or poverty or disease or whatever, then we're, we're maybe ready to listen. Even God, he might get off. He might be acquitted. But the important thing to know is that man is on the bench and God is on the stand. God is the one on trial. Lewis is saying that when we start thinking of ourselves as, as the final authority, even God becomes answerable to us. He has to respond to our list of objections. He has to, to, to answer our questions, not the other way around. What we're really saying is, I'm going to be the one who decides about you. Because ultimately, deep down, in the very core of who we are, every human being has a problem with judgment. That we are, we are deeply opposed to letting someone else call the shots besides ourselves, even God himself. So that's the problem. But this psalm tells us what we need is a righteous judge. What we need is the righteous judge. David, his whole psalm, all the confidence that he expresses, the reason he ends up rejoicing here is because of this judge. Um, But let's just talk for a second real quick about what's happening here. Uh, It says here in the very beginning, it's a Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. We don't have any idea what a Shigion is. Nobody knows. It's some kind of musical thing, maybe. Um, But we do have a good idea about Cush and what a Benjaminite is. If you recall the story of David from the books of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, you might remember that before David was king, Saul was king. And Saul was the first king in Israel, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. So Cush, whoever this person was, was probably one of his allies, probably somebody on the side of Saul. But Saul was disobedient to God. Saul ended up being a little bit crazy. And in the midst of that, God anointed David as a king while Saul was still alive. And we, we gather from this psalm that probably what's happening is one of Saul's allies, one of his friends, has accused David of being a usurper, maybe of welcoming traitors into his army. Um, they were trampling on his name. They were accusing him of major crimes. I mean, being a usurper wasn't something you're going to get away with. Those are crimes worthy of death. We see it in verse 3. He says, Oh, Lord, my God, if I've done this, if there's any wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. David was saying, I'm innocent. And we know that's the case. We can read in 1 Samuel a story that illustrates this point pretty well. There's a moment in David's life where he's on the run from Saul, where Saul's trying to kill him with this band of men hunting him out. And one evening, Saul's men go into a cave to camp. And it turns out that David and his men were already in that cave, but so far back in it that it was pitch black. Now, I have read, but don't know from experience, that caves are pitch black. My only image I have of caves is like one with golem inside and like there's moonlight shining down but apparently that's not the way they are there's no moonlight 
in, in caves normally. They're dark. They're pitch black. And because of that, when Saul's sleeping, there's an opportunity for David to kill him. But instead of killing him, he goes up, he sneaks behind him, and he just cuts off the corner of his robe. And after that happens, David confronts Saul. It's 1 Samuel uh, chapter 24. And here's what David says. He says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. Someone told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand out against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I have cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. We even read in that passage that David was, he felt guilty about cutting robe, let alone about trying, being in the position to, to murder Saul. David was an innocent man. And this guy, Cush, is spreading lies about him, lies that could lead to his death. And in this moment of overwhelming opposition and fear and anxiety, here's how David comforts himself. My God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Does that strike you as odd at all? How many of you, when you're feeling anxious, you say, well, God feels indignation every day, so I can just rest easy right now. It's, it's not one of our, our go-to memory verses, right? But maybe we tell ourselves something like, oh, well, God is loving. God is it's comforting. God is my protector. And the Bible is clear. He certainly is those things. But the Bible is just as clear about this. God feels indignation every day. God feels indignation every day. Derek Kidner, who is an Old Testament scholar, he's, he elaborates on this. He says, God's indignation is more constant than any human zeal. It has no tendency to cool down either into compromise or into despair. In other words, what he's saying is God is a righteous judge. God is holy. God is the very definition of good. And that means that he is completely opposed to evil. That he is entirely committed to wiping it off the face of the earth. It means that he will not despair. He's not going to get tired and give up someday and say, you know what, this is too bad. The situation is too rough. I give up. And he's not going to compromise. He's not going to say, you know what, I'm just going to make a deal with you. We're going to meet halfway, and, and I'm going to stop this. No, he's not going to stop anywhere short of perfect justice. You see, a righteous judge means that evil will not go unpunished. And because that difficult, that's a difficult message for us to hear, because we don't like talking about God punishing evil, we tend to kind of ignore these verses, or at least put them at a secondary level in our lives. We turn the volume down on these passages a little bit. I think we do that because we want the Bible to be more accessible to people. I think we do that because we want it to be attractive to people. But I also know that by doing that, what we've done is we've made a God who is more acceptable, who is easier to get along with, but also a God 
who's easier to ignore. In this passage, it tells us God will not be ignored. God has no tolerance for evil. And that's actually good news. A righteous God is good news for us because a righteous God is our only hope for peace in this life. Uh, it may strike you, the violence of this psalm may strike you. The language probably jumps out at you when you read it. I know it does for me. But it's interesting to think this violent language, all of this imagery and stuff, it doesn't lead to a holy war. But it actually leads to peace. This doesn't lead to David and his men attacking Saul and his men, but it actually leads to David refusing to strike Saul. You see, faith in the righteous, judging God is actually a faith that leads us to peace and nonviolence. There's a famous theologian, his name's Miroslav Volf, and he wrote a lot on this. Um, he says that it, in fact, is only that type of faith, only the faith in a just God that can avoid violence in this life, only belief in what he says, a, a vengeful God that will lead us to nonviolence. Here's, here's how he puts it. Um, he says, My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially Christians in the West. And so to the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. So let's all just do that for a second. Let's, uh, let's imagine we're delivering a lecture in a war zone. And so he says, Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And the topic of your lecture is a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate because God is a God of perfect love. He says, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that nonviolence goes with God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. In other words, what this guy is saying is, a God who lets evil go unpunished is not a God of love. A God who lets evil go unpunished can't be counted on. If God's not going to punish evil, that means that ultimately it's up to us. And it's up to us now. We're the ones that are going to have to carry out justice. But on the other hand, if God is a righteous judge, then we can find peace even in the worst possible circumstances. If God is a righteous judge who won't let the guilty go unpunished, that means we can find rest. Even when everything else in our life seems unfair and torn apart. Do you remember how God describes himself to Moses in that famous passage in Exodus where he passes before him? Do you remember what, what God declares to be his name? Here's what he says. God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? When God describes himself, what he shows us in that picture is that justice and love are really two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. So do you see why we need this righteous judge? Why this is our only hope? In a world that's filled with violence from from petty arguments to all-out war, the only thing that's going to keep us from vengeance, the only thing that's going to keep us from retaliating is if we believe that God is just. The only way we can trust, the only way we can rest, the only way we can forego revenge is if we're confident that someday he's going to bring justice. Okay, so we need that kind of judge. But how do we get to where David is that we are rejoicing in a righteous judge? How do we get to the place where this is what brings us joy? This is what makes us grateful. The last verse of the psalm says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due His righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. David's comforted by this just and righteous God. But if we start to think about it, if we start to imagine exactly what a holy God's justice would look like. It seems more terrifying than comforting, doesn't it? If God is truly opposed to all evil and wickedness, it's not just the bad people that are going to fall, but no one can stand before him. No one in this this room would, would dare to claim perfection. Of course, if you were paying attention... Uh, when we read the psalm earlier, you might have noticed David standing up and saying in verse 8, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that's within me. You might think, well, what's wrong with David? Like, how is he, what's he got? Why does he think he's so much better than these other guys who are his enemy? And um, we've got to be careful here. I don't want us to take it out of context. David is talking about this very specific situation. He's saying, in this moment, with this disagreement with Cush, I am innocent. I haven't done the things that he said I've done. But David's no fool. David would never stand before the Lord and declare that he had no unrighteousness or wickedness in his life. In fact, if you flip just a couple pages over, you'll find Psalm 14. That's also written by David. And in Psalm 14, he says, there is no one on this earth who does good. There was no one who is righteous, not even one person. David knew that God's standard was was not some weak standard, right? God as a judge, he's not not Judge Judy. He's not deciding who is the, the relatively better person in a disagreement between two people. But his standard is perfection. Just a couple psalms before this, David says, evil cannot stand in the presence of God. And if you go towards the end of the book, it says, O Lord, if if you should count our iniquities, who could possibly stand? And of course the answer is no one. No one could stand. 
Now, if, if it's true, like Miley Cyrus says, that only God can judge us, then that is not something that we need to be getting tattooed on our lower backs, right? This is something that we need to take seriously. This is something that should terrify us. This is something that should make us afraid. And David's not afraid. He's decidedly not afraid. In fact, he's grateful. He's celebrating. So how is that? Well, it's because David knew what we were just talking about. David knew God's name. David knew who God was. That God is a God of justice, but he is also a God of love. And because he is a God of love, God has made a way for us, for the unrighteous people, for all of us, to receive justice and also to receive mercy. In his love, He made a way, and he did it even through David's lineage. He did it through David's own line. Because none of us could withstand this perfect standard of God's justice. Jesus Christ, God the Son, became a man. And he lived a perfect life. A life of true and actual righteousness. A life of perfection. And whereas David praised this line in verse 8 about this one very specific instance, Jesus was ultimately the one who could declare, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that was within me. Jesus was perfectly righteous and on the cross, he died as a sinner. He died in our place for our sins. The message of the gospel is this, it's that the righteous judge, the holy and perfect judge has put himself on the stand. And not for any uh, crimes that he could be accused of, but for our crimes. That he's been found guilty in our place and he has paid our punishment in full with his death on the cross. But you know, that's not where the gospel message ends, right? Jesus didn't just die. He rose again from the dead. And the promise is that he's coming back He's coming back again to judge. But when he returns, the standard isn't going to be, how did you act? How did you behave? Did your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Are the scales balanced? Because that's how I'm going to determine whether you'll get in or not. That's not the way Jesus is going to judge. He's going to judge based on one thing. Where does your righteousness come from? Is your righteousness from your works and the things that you've done and, and your imperfect record? Or is it from mine? Your faith in me and my works and my perfect record that can withstand the test. And so the option stands before us. All of us who have put ourselves in the place of judge as we are examining this text and thinking about what it might mean for us. Either we can believe that God is not who he said he is, that evil will not ultimately be punished, and that vengeance is left up to us, that we're the ones who are responsible, or we can believe the gospel, that someday all of the wicked will have to answer, and that includes us, every single one of us here. Either we can keep living for ourselves, 
We can keep judging for ourselves and living a life enslaved to our desires and our demands and punishing people as we see fit. Or we can get out of the judgment seat. We can repent and we can believe the gospel and we can kneel in gratitude before the throne of grace. We can come with David and rejoice that we have a righteous judge. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for your word. And I have to admit, as I read this text, that I, I am not often thinking about you as a righteous judge. That's not something that draws me into praise. And a big reason for it is because I know my own heart. I know my sin. I know my, my need. So Lord, I pray that, that this evening you would remind all of us who are, are there uh, that you have provided for us sinners. That you have given us a perfect record of righteousness and it belongs to us and we can come to you freely. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who, who may not know that. Who may not know you and who feels the weight of the guilt and the burden of it and they don't know what to do with it, Lord. And I pray, God, that they might come to you tonight. Lord, that you don't need anyone to be your judge because you are the great king. And so I pray you would just show up, that you would reveal yourself, that you would declare yourself to be Lord, um, that you would prove yourself to be God. Lord, I pray that you would bless us and the rest of our worship here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.